Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. Have you ever found yourself in a tough relationship or or a tough situation with somebody. Maybe somebody has wronged you or or harmed you. Maybe somebody has cut you off on the road while driving or or maybe a company has cheated you out on something. They've disrespected you or they're refusing to help. Or maybe your boss at work is extremely condescending, is always talking down on you. And then you find yourself, or at least I find myself having these internal battles of what do I do? There is part of me that desires to respond in a very unhealthy way. I want to retaliate. I want to fight. I want them to receive a punishment for the way that they are treating me. But then there's this other part of me that that reminds myself that, oh no, I follow Jesus. I am a a Christian. And and that part of me says, hey, you need to calm down a little bit. You, You need to think about your actions. You need to let it go. And it's this moment where I picture those cartoons where you have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and they're just fighting with each other. If we can be honest for a moment, sometimes following Jesus in this world is difficult. Sometimes it is hard. And it's hard because there are many people in the world that don't have the same values that we do. And yet we are called to go out into the world and shine the light of Christ, the the love of Christ onto all people. But how do we do that when we come across difficult people? How do we do that within our relationships at home or with friends or at work, at the gym, at a restaurant or dealing with different businesses, especially when those relationships are difficult? How do we live as Christians in all of our relationships? This is what Paul is addressing today in our passage. And before I read it, I must warn you that some of what he says is very troubling. And you'll see what I, I mean here in a moment. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ready? Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do in the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. That was a long section. And you can see how difficult this passage is. Men who love power and control have absolutely no problem with this passage because wives, you must submit to your husbands because the husband is the head of the wife. But then what about women who are in abusive relationships? What do we do then? And then Paul gives advice for how to have slaves. What do we do with that in today's world? What, what do we do all of this? And how does all of this help us understand how to live as Christians today in the 21st century within all of our relationships? Paul outlines three different relationships. First, wives and husbands. Second, children and parents. And third, slaves and masters. And in Paul's time, all three of these relationships, they would all happen within the household. And the household was important because until the third century, so it was nearly 300 years after Jesus had died, 200 years after Paul wrote this, this letter. So it's not until the third century that Christianity became the religion and now it's okay. Prior to all of this, it was illegal in many different places. And so they would gather for worship in the homes. And so the homes, the household was not only just the place that the church gathered, but it was also that the, where the church was and, and how the church lived itself out. And then within this household structure that Paul writes about, each of these three relationships were all with the father of the house. The father was the husband, was the father, and also was the master of the slaves in their house. 
And what Paul is doing here is he's addressing the central place where the Christian life was found and using that to then explain the ideal vision of what the Christian life would look like. And it's worth noting that, that Paul is both reflecting on and also rejecting the family systems of that time. He is reflecting on what already exists by then explaining the perfect version of that. But at the same time, he's also rejecting the power that the father had in these relationships. And each one that he outlines, Paul addresses the inferior party first which was unheard of and almost disrespectful to not address the father of the house first, but instead chooses the inferior party and then addresses the superior party, which is the father, in order to go against the norm of that time. So the early church reading this, it would have been extremely shocking to them to hear it in this way, almost as shocking to us 2,000 years later to, to read about advice for having slaves. And Paul, again, is rejecting and reflecting upon the systems that existed and using that to reinterpret it through the lens of Jesus. And the guiding principle for this entire household structure that Paul talks about is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is the idea of respect and honor, obedience. It's, it's the idea of stepping back or yielding to other people. And the reason that we submit is because of our reverence or respect for Jesus. This is a call for us to submit to one another, which means that every single person submits to every single person. It's this idea of mutual submission that as I'm submitting to you, you are also submitting to me. And this verse is the, the foundation that Paul builds the rest of this passage on. The, the foundation, again, is mutual submission. This is the guiding principle that he uses as he addresses the three different relationships. And if we can jump to the end... We see that Paul deals with slaves and masters. Now it's important to know that slavery in Paul's time was much different than what we think of today with slavery. Today, we often think about slavery based on what happened in America 200 years ago. But in Paul's day, slavery had nothing to do with race, it had nothing to do with class, and slavery was hardly ever a lifelong service. Slavery usually resulted from things like unpaid debts or the sale of a child, which I'll circle back to in a moment, or even a court ruling, or sometimes from war or piracy. These are how slaves would happen. And most slaves in this Roman era were cared for really well. They were basically like family and they were then invaluable assets to the household. And the household is like the family business. So it was extremely important to have help with the family business. And I want to say here that even though Paul talks about slavery, 
he never says that slavery is okay. Instead, he's reflecting on the culture of that time, but reinterpreting it through the Christian lens. And again, we see here an emphasis on mutual submission. Paul gives four commands to slaves in verses five through seven. He tells them to obey. He says, be sincere of heart, do the will of God and serve wholeheartedly. And then Paul moves on to the masters of these slaves and says in the first part of verse nine, that masters treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way means that masters also must be obedient. They must be sincere of heart, doing the will of God and serving wholeheartedly. And then in addition to that, the second part of verse 9, Paul says, Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism. Paul adds this humility check here and reminds the father who is the slave owner and master that while he may be their earthly master, the actual master is in heaven and this is the same master for both of them. In other words, Paul puts the master and the slave on equal grounds, which would be extremely shocking to hear in that time. And if we were to reinterpret this message or this context 2,000 years later, we could relate it to our workplaces. Because again, back then, slaves and masters were working together on the family business, on the family farm, whatever the family business would have been. And most of those times, those slaves happened because of business type deals. And rather interesting, the slaves were even often more educated than the masters were. And so I think we can take this guiding principle and apply it to our workplaces, wherever that may be. Most workplaces have some type of a hierarchy system. Maybe you have a boss, or maybe you are the boss, or both. You are both the boss, but then you also have a boss yourself. There is this hierarchy system that you have. And even when we work for ourselves and we are self-employed, in a way, our clients become both our employees for a time and also our bosses as a time. It's hard to remove ourselves from from this type of a structure in any workplace. And the guiding principle that Paul has is mutual submission. We should remember that God is the ultimate master of everyone. Therefore, when we are the boss of other people, we should never hold that over them because we are really on equal ground with Jesus as our master. And so no matter what level you may be in the company, we should always be obedient with sincere hearts, always doing the will of God and serving wholeheartedly. In other words, we submit to one another out of our reverence and respect for Christ. 
But then what do we do when, when we work for an abusive or a mean boss? I have worked for my handful of them. And what do you do in those toxic situations? Paul says that we stay obedient by doing the will of God with sincere hearts and we continue to serve wholeheartedly. We remember who the true master really is and we submit out of respect for him who is Christ. And then within this family structure, Paul also addresses children and fathers. Similarly to slaves, Paul says in verse 1 and 2, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father, father and mother. Now, the word children here does not specify an age, but rather the relationship, which then includes us adults that have parents as well. As children with parents, we must obey and honor our parents. And honor means to both respect them, but also to care for them. And then Paul jumps to the other half of this relationship where he identifies them as fathers, but this is really directed to parents. If there are more than one parent of these children, and he says in verse four, he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. This word exasperate means to provoke the child to anger or resentment. Now again, Paul is, he's pushing against the culture and fighting against it because this would be a big deal. Back in Paul's time, the father had great power over the kids. A Roman father had the legal rights to sell their kids into slavery if he wanted to. He could force the kids at any age to work under any conditions that he saw fit. As punishment, the father had the right to kill their own child and nobody would even raise a question. And if the father did not like their newborn, a newborn baby comes out, the father says, no, nope, I don't like it. He had the ability to literally throw them away. The, the father had an extreme power here. And now Paul says, hey, fathers, even though you have a legal right to do that, you should not provoke them to anger. This would be huge as they are reading this. They're like, what do you mean we can't use our rights that we have as father to do this? Paul is saying, don't treat your kids like they are property. Instead, the second half of verse four, he says, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now pause for a moment. Paul is not telling parents to avoid discipline. Discipline is needed with children. Rules are needed. Punishments must be given. However, Paul is drawing a line here that says this line must not be crossed. There is a difference between discipline and abuse. 
And Paul is saying we must not cross over that line. Instead, we must remember our goal, which is to bring them up in the training and righteousness and instruction of the Lord. We have a duty to teach our children what is right. We teach our children who God is, who Jesus is. We teach them to obey and trust God. And then we teach our children to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what's interesting is that this verb to, to bring them up, that, that verb bring up is the same root as the word in Greek to feed. It's a call for parents to feed their children God in a sense. And it's the same root as another word that Paul uses within the relationship between husband and wife. Now to the difficult passage in verses 22 and 24 of chapter 5. Paul says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the, the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In our English translations, it says that wives must submit to their husbands. It says that word submit in both verses 22 and 24. However, in the original Greek language, that word submit does not exist. It is not there at all. These verses actually in Greek don't have any verbs whatsoever, which would then make them an incomplete sentence, which then carries over the command from verse 21. So it's saying that everyone must submit to everyone. It would read something like this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as the church to Christ. It would read as kind of a clarifying statement, not a separate verse to read on its own, wives submit to your husbands, but rather everyone submit to everyone. Here are some examples, wives to husbands, church to Christ, meaning that a wife's submission to her husband was an expression of her submission to the Lord. And the reason for this submission is verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now today we think of head as the place where we do all of our thinking. All of our reasoning would take place in the head. We, we use language of the head of the company is the leader, the CEO, the one that is in charge. So we read this passage and, and say that the husband is now the head of the wife. He is the leader of the household. He is the leader of the wife, the one in charge, the one that does all the thinking and reasoning and making all of the decisions. But that is not what the original church would think of when they had or when they heard the word head. Back then, they didn't know the human body as well as we do today. They thought the heart was the center of everything that you were. The heart is where all of your thinking came from. It's where all of your decisions and emotions and your willpower came from. The head then is what fed 
the heart. Your head has eyes, ears, it has a nose and a mouth. And all of these things provide for your body. Through your mouth, you give your body food and water and air. Through your eyes and your nose and your ears, you give your body, your heart, all the information it needs to understand what is around it. So you can imagine the head being like a giant door and its main purpose was to allow things into the body. So for them, they they would think of head as source, like how today the head of a river is its Source, where the river begins, what is feeding the rest of that river. And we can confirm this thinking with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every woman is man. And the head of, every, and the head of Christ is God. If we interpret head to mean leader then Paul would be telling us that God is the leader of Christ, which would be heresy. Paul would then be killed and stoned for that type of thinking because that would tell us that God and Jesus are two separate beings and that there's this hierarchy system where God is really in control and then Jesus and then whatever we do with the Holy Spirit, I don't know, I don't care because God is then in control. But that is not what we believe as Christians. That is not what Paul believes. We believe in one God, in three persons, but they are one God. And so God cannot be the leader of Christ. But if we read it correctly, we see that the source of Christ is God which aligns with the rest of scripture. Again, think of a a river. All parts of the river are connected. The source, the beginning would then be be God. We, We have scripture that says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We have, and God sent his one and only son into the world. The the idea is that the source of Christ was then God and the source of every man is Christ. And therefore the source of every woman is man. But why? Because if we back up to Genesis, we see that it is through the side of Adam that God creates Eve. It is like this image where God takes Adam and almost literally cuts him in half and takes this half. In our languages, we read takes a rib out of the side, but it's better understood as he's cut in half. And Eve is then created as a co-equal, a co-heir, a co-partner and helper. So the source of woman, according to Genesis, is man. And so the husband being the head of the wife means that the husband is the source or the provider. The head or source is the same word that I mentioned with parents to kids as feed. Going back to that that relationship, the parents must feed and provide for their kids. And so in the same way, husbands must also provide for his wife. And Paul quickly helps us understand that because then he shifts to reminding us that Christ is the head, the source, the provider of the church. So then what does this mean for wives? Does it mean that wives must submit to husbands? 
Yes, it does. But not because the husband is the ruler of them, but because in verse 21, Paul says that everyone must submit to everyone. So since wives are called to submit to everyone, they therefore should then submit to husbands. And if I'm being completely honest, I wish that Paul had included a little bit more context or a little bit more instructions here. I wish that Paul would have added that not only do wives have to submit, but they also are responsible for making dinner every night. They are responsible for giving us men, us hardworking husbands, back rubs every night or telling them that they must laugh at our really corny and lame dad jokes. I really wish Paul added all of that, but he doesn't. He stops at saying everyone submit to everyone, wives to husbands, but then he doesn't stop. He lays hard into the husbands. He says, verse 25, husbands. Again, husbands have the same command to submit to one another, meaning submit to their wives as well. And then he goes further, verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He literally submitted his entire being. He offered himself as a living sacrifice for the church. So husbands, we must love our wives in the same way. Paul says, verse 28, 29, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they, here's this word again, they feed and care for their body. Here we are again with this idea that husbands are the provider of food and care. And so we must not only love our wives like Christ loves the church, but now we must also love our wives in the same way as we do ourselves. And again, this is all centered around the idea of submission. Marriage requires that both the husband and the wife submit to each other in Christ-like ways. And if we take all of this and we put it all together, we see two things. First, we see that to be Christian, to live like Christ, to live holy and pleasing lives to God, to live worthy of the calling that we have received, means that we must live a life of mutual submission in every relationship. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and in any other type of relationship you can think of, friends, extended family, workplaces, random strangers that you encounter. Paul is leading us down this journey. He started at the beginning of Ephesians to, to remind us that we live a life of Christ for the sole purpose of growing in his image. Because as we grow in his image, we shine more of his light and love to the world around us. We grow more into who he has called and created each of us to be. And then we are united together as the body of Christ. 
I mentioned earlier that verse 21, that, that, that verse submit to one another, that verse or that verb submit is what carries on for the next several verses to connect all of that together like one long sentence. And if we back up, the last time a verb is used is in verse 18, which we looked at last week, which says that we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so these two ideas or these two commands are connected together. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit and submit to one another. The call of submission is where we empty ourselves of ourselves. We get rid of selfishness, of status, of wealth. We take off these old clothes and then we put on these new clothes, which means that we are then filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit allows us to submit to one another out of love. Love for each other and love for Christ. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing we see is, is what Christ is actively doing for us as the church. Throughout all of these relationships that Paul mentioned, he kept coming back to Jesus. Verse 23, he says that Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. 25 through 29, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul is talking about Christ and the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the savior and he is the source. Paul said that he not only made this provision and this sacrifice in the past by giving himself up once, but also states that he continues to provide for the church, continues to make us the church holy, cleansing us and presenting us. It's an ongoing presenting us as a radiant, a glowing, a vibrant church. And the purpose of this is to transform the church. And he does that by sanctifying it, which means to make holy. He is continually transforming us, the church, individual Christians, all united together into the likeness of God. It is through that sacrifice that Christ made, that source, that provision, the head of the water that feeds everything else. It is through that act, that moment, and then through the continued infilling of the Holy Spirit that all of this is even possible. The focus and emphasis here is on the work of Christ through the Spirit. To speak of submission sounds absolutely absurd to the world around us. Have you ever tried to tell anybody, oh, we must submit to one another. We must turn the other cheek. Somebody slaps you on one cheek, give them the other cheek as well. They take your shirt. Why don't you offer them your undergarments as well? That sounds absolutely crazy to the rest of the world. But if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the idea of submission makes complete sense. Now, it doesn't mean that we become passive pushovers 
what it means is that we become proactive providers. We put aside our own needs in order to care for and provide for one another. And if we have the Holy Spirit inside us, then all of this is possible. But if we don't, then all of this will continue to, continue to just sound absolutely crazy. It would sound crazy that Jesus, the Savior, God himself, would win the battle by surrendering himself and dying on a cross. That would sound absolutely crazy. But with the Spirit inside of us, we can see a different way. The truth is the way that we live and act as Christians matters. We do not participate in the sinful activities of the culture around us. We do not act in selfish and oppressive ways, but instead we act like Christ. We fight our battles through surrender. And I want to encourage you this morning to, to evaluate what that sounds like to you. If this sounds crazy, if the idea of winning a battle by submitting sounds crazy, if the idea of submitting to somebody else when they have wronged you, if that sounds crazy, then I want you to ask yourself, do you really have the spirit inside of you? Is, is the spirit really alive and active, filling up so much inside of you? And if this does sound right, if you're saying, yes, that, that's how I want to live, then I want you to ask yourself, is this how you are living your life now? The call for us is to live a life of mutual submission to one another out of our reverence and respect and love for Christ, which happens through the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a call for surrender and submission and sanctification by the Holy Spirit. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can even live this ideal Christian life that Paul talks about. So I want to offer you this opportunity now to evaluate your life and to think about how this all sounds. And if something comes up that God reveals to you and says, oh, okay, I can see that I'm not really living like Christ in this area. I can see that, that this does really sound crazy to me. If that happens, what I want you to do is offer that back to Christ. Allow him to come in and take it out and then replace it with himself inside of you. Pray with me. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. I ask that you would reveal inside of us ways that we may not be living quite up to the Christian life. God, we know that we are not perfect and we know that we can't be perfect, but we also know that we can have your perfect love inside of us. God, help us see the ways that we have faults. See the ways that we may have been acting in inappropriate ways. Help us understand your will. Help us to obey with sincere hearts. Help us do your will and help us serve wholeheartedly in all of our relationships. 
God, we present these to you. We ask that you would take them from us. She would forgive us of these ways that we have gone astray. And that you would take them from us and fill us. Replace that space with your spirit. Grow in us so that we may continue to grow in your image. God, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. One of the best ways to participate in, in this idea of, of sacrificing ourselves and submitting in order to replace us with Christ is to remember what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. To remember through this, this, this act, this means of grace, this sacrament that we call communion. Where two things happen. One, we remember what Christ did on the cross. We remember that he was willing to submit, including to the disciple that would betray him. But we also realize that this is a way for us to continually participate in the grace of God. We realize that this is a way for us to, to experience the presence of Christ in a new way within us. And so with these cups... We remember that on the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he gathered all of his 12 disciples together, including Judas. And after submitting himself by washing their feet, after they had a meal together and shared in community to one another, he took the bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for giving us the opportunity today to not only remember what you did, but to participate in your grace. God, would this be our nourishment? Would this be our food that would sustain us throughout the rest of this week? That we would continue to find the strength and energy to live and grow more into your image. God, we thank you for all that you are. And we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnaschurch or our website, rnaz.church.